What's up, guys? Welcome back to the West Vi Podcast. This episode is sponsored by Disruptive Adventism. Disruptive Adventism is a platform that encourages people to contribute to the changing of the fabric of Adventism through conversation, collaboration, and content creation. If you want to join in, head over to disruptiveadventism.org. We're holistic, you know, all the parts of who we are are connected. Physical, mental, spiritual, it's all connected. And theology does impact mental health. And I have, I don't know if this is too much of a digression for you, but I have encountered that in the reverse, where I have come to know people in my practice as a counselor whose theology I felt was harming them psychologically. What's up, guys? Today we're talking about a really important topic. I think it doesn't get enough uh, attention in Christian circles as it should. And perhaps I think there's still, I think we're doing better as a society about having a stigma around mental health and counseling in particular. And I think the church is doing better, but there's still a need to normalize the idea of seeking help from a counselor. You know, I've found that in my own experience that, that I need someone to be able to talk to even if things aren't going terribly wrong at any particular moment. But there's something about being able to, to speak openly with someone who's not going to judge you in any way that you don't have to worry about how what you say is going to damage your relationship with them or cause them to see you differently. And you can't get that. I mean, in the best situations, you, your friend can be that for you. Your, your spouse can be that for you. But the reality is, is that I found when I go to a counselor that I'm able to to deal with things that I just I, even if I talk about them with other people I I can't open myself up uh, to really deal with with whatever the the issue is uh, in in the same way with someone I know versus a counselor that I'm going to for professional help and I try to go every you know every couple of years for at least a few months if I can to just kind of talk through things. And I typically find something that's kind of hanging out under there and kind of holding me back. And so um, it's it's such an important part of our human experience to be able to unpack and understand what's going on in our mind and our emotions and why we're acting and responding a particular way. And as Christians, I think we really have to own the fact that that it's important for us to be real with ourselves. We have to we have to be completely open and honest with ourselves if we're ever going to be able to fully acknowledge the depth of impact that sin has had on us. And so today in my conversation with Jennifer Jill Swerzer, we're going to be talking about how mental health and the gospel coalesce and how uh, therapy can help us begin to live fully realized in Christ the way that he wants us to. And, you know, we believe as, as Seventh-day Adventists that sanctification is the work of a lifetime. It's, it's a process that we have to go through, and part of that process can be greatly benefited by the use of, of professional therapeutic um, counseling as we seek to, you know, renew our mind through the Spirit of God. And so, having known Jennifer for a few years now, I really wanted to get her 
on the podcast to talk about uh, counseling and, and, and psychological uh, help so that we can begin to open up a dialogue and help people understand that, that this is a normal, helpful, healthy part of life. Jennifer currently lives in Orlando, Florida, and she operates the Abide Counseling Network. You'll hear her talk about that a little bit on the on the show. I met her in when she was living in Pennsylvania um, and was working with uh, Reach Philadelphia there and um, had her practice, and she helped me through a couple things that I was struggling with in my time there, and then also, she just she's a musician, and uh, probably, hopefully, you've heard of uh, the Lesser Light Collective. And they have two uh, albums out uh, that you should definitely check out: uh, the King Dreams and the Lamb Wins. Um, and she was a, a, I think, a founding member of that. Her and a couple other guys were the ones that really brought that group together. So, um, great musician, uh, really insightful counselor, and I'm just really glad to have the opportunity to share this conversation with you. I hope that it helps you to um, maybe understand a little better how our mind uh, works and how as we utilize uh, counseling, we can begin to live more fully in the reality of what Christ has done for us. So have a listen to this conversation. Hope you love it. Talk to you on the other side. So when I was in high school, and this is even before I was a religious person at all, but I was, my nickname was The Shrink, because I was just the kind of person that people would confide in, and also the kind of person that would, I found human, humans and human dynamics relationships to be fascinating, and I was always trying to break them down and sort of analyze and and sort of reassemble the pieces and try to figure out everything worked. And so I earned the name nickname Shrink. That was my first kind of signal. Then that continued into adulthood, and I actually was into music ministry for many years. I'm a pretty prolific, or was at the time, pretty prolific songwriter. Still write songs, just not as prolifically at this point. And did a number of recordings and did a lot of concerts and that type of thing. And... Um, afterward, people would come and talk to me. And it was always like the deep secrets of their life. And then I would start having conversations with people that would be characterized. They would say things, for instance, um, boy, I haven't even told my wife this. You know, I remember talking to a pastor once after a, a concert or something, and he said, I haven't even told my wife. And I just started to come to the conclusion that there was something about me that elicited trust in people and that they felt like they could just be completely blunt with me about themselves. And I thought, well, that's probably a characteristic of someone in the field of psychology. So I started piecing that together. Then I wanted to do the music thing and I got into public speaking and writing. But then when my kids grew up and started launching and I really wasn't needed as much and, and really women need to reinvent themselves so that they don't stay mother to their children just for a sense of purpose mm-hmm. or over mother their children when they're adults just to retain a sense of purpose so I knew that and I knew that I had to have a second act and so I wanted to go back to school and do something on a professional level and I was torn between seminary and f- school for psychology and I knew that if I went to seminary I'd have to be a pastor 
that's pretty much the job mm-hmm. you get from it. And so I went to my husband and said, do you want to be married to a pastor? And he said, no. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, then psychology it is, which actually worked out well for the rest of my life because I was still doing a lot of traveling and some music and then speaking, and I wanted to continue to be able to do that. And if you're a pastor, you're pretty much working in the same place every weekend. So right. it worked out well because I could leave on the weekends and still do the counseling during the week. But it was a loss. I wanted to study theology on a graduate level. I wanted to study the Bible and learn how to exegete scripture. And that's my first love. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it worked out well because it's a niche. You know, it's there's not a lot of really good mental health in the church that I'm a member of, the Adventist church. There's some, and there's more and more, but there's a bit of a deficit, a lot of physical health stuff, but not a lot of mental health stuff. So I've been able to fill a niche. What was it like, like making that decision and like, because it's in recent years, it's kind of become that the church is kind of opening up more to it. I think probably because you and some of the others that are in the field are really trying to drive awareness. But I mean, I don't know how long ago it was that you decided to take this course, but it wasn't that long ago that it was still kind of like... 10, 11 years. Well, it was like 15 years ago that I started school and Mm -hmm. I graduated three years later and started my practice at that time. I mean, what was the response when people, when you start trying to like, have those conversations people find out what you're doing and like responding to the idea of therapy because it it seems like it's kind of like a it's kind of been off to the side and almost kind of like viewed with suspicion in the church for a lot of years there's some of that i wrote a book that was kind of my um, magnum opus on psychology from a biblical standpoint and i wanted to call the book jesus psychology i love the title still do and then if I wrote a sequel, it would be a relation, um, Jesus Relationships, and you know it could be the Jesus brand, which I would have loved. But the publishers who are Adventists, Adventism is a conservative, pretty conservative Christian denomination, and they said if you put the word psychology in the title, it'll kill the sales of the book. And they weren't saying that because they believed that. They were saying because they knew their market, mm-hmm. and the majority of their market were older, old guard type of people. And so there's this built up fear against anything that the world embraces. The church automatically kind of assumes that it must be dangerous. And so that was kind of latent in the minds of these people that was sufficient to where I couldn't have the title of my book mm-hmm. that I wanted. So they named it 13 Weeks to Peace, which is a really boring title as far as I'm <laughs> concerned. But it's worked out fine. I'm very adaptable. I don't have to always have my way. But um, but that was kind of the mindset. However, I found that when I actually got into counseling, well, I was in my the third year of my master's studies, and I had to do an internship. So I had to work at a clinic basically for free and start seeing clients. And people, the word got out. Now, I'd already been an author, and people kind of knew, some people knew who I was in church circles, a little bit of a medium-sized fish in a small pond kind of thing, you know, mm-hmm. or maybe a small to medium fish in a small pond. But few people knew who I was. And as soon as people found out I was counseling, they sought me out. So there's a sort of juxtaposition of this public fear of psychology, but at the same time, this private desperation for it, mm-hmm. you know, that I saw. And so people just started like, I've never advertised for my counseling services. People find out about me. In fact, I have a network at this point, 10 years, 11 years hence, where I'm handing off the majority of the referrals that come in, the people that want me, I put them with someone else. Mm-hmm. And I've been training these uh, counselors and coaches and trying to raise up a whole network so that I can distribute these clients. 
that's what happened to me. I mean, people just, there was such a need within this denomination that people just sought me out. And let me quickly add that people in the Adventist church, for the most part, want an Adventist counselor or would prefer one. They don't have to have that. It, it isn't even necessary to have a Christian counselor. A regular counselor can help people with some mental health issues if they're provided that they're skilled and also respectful of that person's religion. So I don't think people need to be afraid of even secular counselors necessarily, mm-hmm. but they prefer an Adventist counselor because Adventism has specific particular beliefs about things and they don't want to have to explain everything, nor do they want to have to defend it, nor do they want to have to worry about being a bad witness to someone. Yeah. And they kind of feel like if you tell someone outside the church, you know, I'm showing how messed up we really are. Yeah. Actually, I think that'd be a good witness, frankly, because it would kind of make people feel more comfortable with us, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but I was, that's another subject. Yeah, I, I, I try to go to counseling every so often. Uh, I did a lot of counseling um, when I was uh, working in the Pennsylvania Conference with uh, a lady. I don't think she was a Christian. I don't know. We didn't get into it. But she worked with my framework, and it was just really... Helpful, and then I went to uh, a few years later. I decided I just I just wanted to go to counseling again. I just felt like I needed to work on things. I didn't know what it was, and and I was really wrestling with a lot of baggage about my relationship to the church and just some of the things that had happened to me uh, working in ministry and and feeling resistance to being able to access my calling. And I'm talking to the counselor about it, and she finally was just like, "Why don't you change churches?" Uh-huh. And so, you know, then we had, you were like, she's like, you should come to my ne- church. You know, I uh. go to this really great welcoming church. And I was like, what the problem is, is like my calling is this. Yeah. And I can't with integrity fulfill yeah. my calling anywhere else because I believe certain things that are different than every other yeah. church. And, you know, I was like, so I can't just go to another church and just move on, you know, because there's these yeah. things, the Sabbath and, and right. some of the doctrines that that we hold that are unique that uh-huh. I can't do that, you know. And so she, she didn't understand the depth of commitment, yeah. yeah. But it makes a big difference yeah. when the counselor is willing to work within your paradigm. And I found yeah. that really hard to find mm-hmm. um, of the counselors that I've gone to. Only one of them did it well, and another one tried really hard mm-hmm. um, to work with me within my paradigm without trying to caused me to come into their really paradigm and because kind of, counselors are supposed to be really good at that whether they're buddhist or taoist or secular or what you know they're supposed to be very good at affirming what's working for that person and what and what they value as a person so they really shouldn't try to change but it's really hard because psyche and spiritual are very very close mm-hmm. and so to change someone's mindset about you know just psychological things is kind of close to changing their spiritual mindset so i can see where there'd be a struggle do you think that's why mm-hmm. christians and adventists in particular really struggle with that because we see that close mm-hmm. correlation of, of the mind and the will yeah. and adventism being a big thing with our behavioral package that mm-hmm. we have and so there's that fear that if we're if we're over here and someone's messing around in our mind that it's going we to feel like it's going to impact us spiritually we don't feel safe in opening ourselves up to something that might influence us away from what we really believe in and when you're in a counseling relationship and this is a fact you are very vulnerable and susceptible to impressions that come you're opening the soft impressionable part of you open up to that counselor and so there's potential for that to happen i'm just speaking from a standpoint of ethics codes Mm -hmm. and you're supposed to be very respectful of a person's religion Mm -hmm. whether that happens or not is kind of a crapshoot you know well they were it wasn't that they weren't respectful it's just they they kept trying to like move it over here instead of working with me 
from this regard, the, the counselor that I worked with in Pennsylvania, like, you know, I don't know where she stands. It didn't matter. Right. She just probed yeah. into where I was going mm-hmm. and just went with me. And then, you know, just was, she would listen and then just you know, ask just like the right question, you know, and it was all about just un- opening up what I was doing rather than trying to get me into some framework. And I've, I yeah. found two. So the two that I've worked with that, that worked really well were both, uh, psychologists, not, yeah. Not Counselors? like not not LPCs. Like okay. they were doctors of psychology. Okay. And and so I don't know if that's a fair assessment, but I found that the the, the LPCs tend to have some framework that they're trying to to get you to come into and work with for their mm-hmm. type of therapy, whatever mm-hmm. whatever they're comfortable doing. Whereas, yeah. I mean, this is a small subject. I think I've worked with five different counselors over the last yeah. ten years, and so, but they they yeah that was the thing they wanted to put you in this kind of like framework to kind of yeah. work in their way versus the, yeah. the psychologists were more like really just kind of opening up and working through what you're going through in your own mind well i i'm a toolbox counselor and i fit the modality to the client not the client to the modality i don't disrespect people that are method driven there are some and they do a lot of good for people they have a particular method. They say, this is my method. If you want help, come and I'll do my method on you. But I'm not quite like that myself. I'm more of a clearinghouse where I get to know the person because I feel like that's the most therapeutic aspect of counseling is like knowing, being known mm-hmm. and cared about in the context of being known well. And then I take tools and I work with the client collaboratively to apply the tools. So if I were to come and say, you need this, you know, I don't know you, but you need mm-hmm. this. To me, that would be a violation of the way I like to roll. Mm-hmm. So that's just an aside. Yeah. I want to go but back yeah. And, yeah. and get your thoughts on what we were talking about a minute ago and the, the connection to the the spiritual and the psyche. Yeah. And, and kind of hear your thoughts on, like, how does that, I mean, that seems like because that connection is there, I like God wired us that way. Yeah. And so... You know, I have found that I grow spiritually when I'm going through this, mm-hmm. and, it, and it feels like that maybe because we've got like almost like the mental health aspect is a way that we've been kind of distracted from kind of getting things in line where we can be open and aware of where we're struggling, the root of where we're struggling, so the Holy Spirit can work on us in a different way. Yeah. And, and if maybe that connection was, in your estimation, intended to be there. Yes, and we're holistic, you know, all the parts of who we are are connected physical, mental, spiritual, it's all connected. And theology does impact mental health. And I have, I don't know if this is too much of a digression for you, but I have encountered that in the reverse, where I have come to know people in my practice as a counselor, whose theology, I felt was harming them psychologically. So then I became the counselor that kind of had a burden to impact their theology but not because I was trying to convert them per se. I don't treat a counseling session like an evangelistic series by a long stretch, but I do recognize the connection there, and sometimes it's difficult not to say something, and I'll give you a specific example. I had a, some, many Christians believe that God creates people and determines their ultimate destiny, and that once he has determined their destiny, when they end up in hell, as some of them are destined to be, they burn in hell forever. They are tortured for eternity. I can't even in my wildest imaginings come up with a more cruel picture of God that he would create some people just to be tortured for eternity. Mm-hmm. But that is what some people believe. And if you question them about it, they'll say God can do whatever he wants. So there's a strong emphasis on God's authority, but no emphasis that I can see on his character 
and how his loving character, basically, and how that is the defense of the gospel. So this particular family that I spoke to is a couple, and all four of their children had left the Christian church. And, of course, they believed that their children would be in hell forever. Mm. And they, as parents, would have to live in heaven with that awareness for eternity. I mean, I'm sorry. I don't mean to be, like, against anyone's religion. Right. But that is extremely psychologically impacting. And so I did feel um, a necessity of asking them about that and opening that conversation up and trying to work with them on those beliefs. Mm -hmm. Of course, the fact is that they don't know what the kid's ultimately going to do. They may come to Christ at some point. But um, I did feel a need to discuss that with them, not to convert them per se, but to open their mind to how that belief was impacting them on a psychological level and just literally torturing them yeah if you can imagine the four kids that you love you know all of them you have to be in heaven with the awareness that they're in hell yeah awful yeah i mean i had that experience too where you know i i've just started to, to coin this term someone used it in a different context that i thought oh man that really works like i'm like a recovering conservative and there was a point when i first came back to the, to the church i was raised in the Adventist church and i left for a long time when i first came back i just fell hook line and sinker into the very ultra right conservative part of the church and and a big part of um the six months of counseling that i did in pennsylvania was working through how all of my beliefs about you know perfection and sinlessness and salvation yeah. um were affecting my ability to view myself, deal with internal problems, mm-hmm. and progress mm-hmm. as a human being. Like, I was mm-hmm. just, like, stuck because I felt just trapped by uh. my own imperfection and this claim of the of the belief system to be perfect yeah. and this requirement to be sinless oh, and my right. absolute inability to accomplish that. Mm-hmm. And so it just made it very difficult to like grow progress process and like healthfully deal with yeah. the sins and challenges that I was facing yeah. in my life. So did you open that up to your therapist that was to some degree? Yeah. 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 Okay. And I mean, it, we didn't get to any really conclusion there and then we ended up moving and probably one of the hardest things about moving away was like sometimes I want to move I want to like go back and visit and like call her, can I just come in and talk like <laughs> yeah. get close to Reading because um, it was really good but um, you know what what it ultimately was was um, through that same time like I was wrestling with the like I had come face to face with the gospel yeah and and just you know the the absolute certainty that can be had when we recognize who we are in Christ Security. and the sufficiency of his sacrifice and just having to reframe everything you know i had to go through this process it's been 6 or 7 almost not almost 10 years now mm-hmm. of reframing mm-hmm. um my entire belief system mm-hmm. to to reconcile it with mm-hmm. the fact that you know Jesus did in fact pay the price for my sin right. and I can have a surety in that. Um, but yeah, sorry. I'm, no, that's just, good. No. And I appreciate that. And I get a lot of clients <clears throat> because I'm one of the only counselors or abide counseling, which is the network mm-hmm. that I run is probably the only definitively Adventist counseling source. We mm-hmm. do distance counseling, by the way, a little commercial here. We do yeah. distance counseling so we can talk to anyone in the world of and and help them either through coaching or counseling depending on the state laws and so forth but i think we're one of the only resources out there for 
counseling. Now, there are a number of other resources for inpatient or residential treatment. Dr. Nedley's being probably one of the most well-known. There's a 10-day depression and anxiety recovery inpatient treatment that's excellent, and I've heard great things and send a lot of my clients there, but we're one of the only ones, and one of the things, so we're kind of the go-to place. So what happens with conservatives is their pool is very small, and they don't trust anybody outside their pool. I'm not really defined as a conservative. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a recovering liberal, and I'm a recovering conservative, and I'm a recovering liberal in the uh-huh. next day, and the recovering <laughs> conservative in the next, because I bounce back and forth, mm-hmm. because I think there's truth and error on both sides of that yeah, spectrum. Absolutely. So that's who I am. So I'm not definitively conservative, but I think I affirm enough conservative values where they feel safe with me, or at least some mm-hmm. of them do. And so I'm like the go-to place. And I get a lot of clients that are far more strict and far more perfectionistic and less secure in Jesus than I am. And it's my privilege to open their minds up, not because I'm trying to convert them, but because it's about their mental health. Open their minds up to the security and joy that they can have in Jesus just as they are right now today. And I really work with them on that. And what I find is that a lot of really conscientious young people particularly, but old people too, have, unbeknownst to themselves, developed a humanistic religion where their eyes are so focused on their piety not just their outward works and behaviors, but their piety level, even their own emotional condition. If they love Jesus enough, stuff mm-hmm. like that, if they pray enough, you know, witness enough, I, it's, their eyes are so focused on their own piety that they've completely lost sight of God and what he's done for them. And it's my privilege to point that out to them and say, do you realize that your whole religious experience right now is pretty much focused on your response to the gospel and that you've completely pretty much stopped looking at the gospel Mm -hmm. and that when you stop looking at the gospel and expect a response to the gospel out of yourself it's like cutting off the supply of water and expecting yourself to drink Mm -hmm. you can't you can't respond to the gospel unless you focus on the gospel so let's go back and like, let's focus on what and the gospel is basically what, not what God did in me. It's what God did for me in Jesus, mm-hmm. apart from my response. You know, and then I, I suppose you could say in the broadest sense, the gospel continues in the transformation growth process. And that's great. But I see the gospel as primarily what God, it's good news. Mm-hmm. It's what God did for us apart from us that gives us the motivational wellspring from which we can actually experience transformation. I have so many clients, West, that completely forget to look back to the source of desire to change mm-hmm. and keep expecting themselves to change. Yeah. And it's, it's tragic. Yeah. It's pathetic to watch. Yeah, I think that's one of the, the, one of the struggles that I think that the, the Adventist theological package struggles with because of not not so much that it that it's in our theology but just in the application that's been been used for so many decades is because we hold to this belief that sanctification is part of God's plan for us mm-hmm. it it gets lumped in with justification and we don't see them as distinct parts of the process mm-hmm. and and that that was that's been the hardest thing only in the last like year have I gotten to the place where I can really 
feel comfortable like you said looking back and remembering okay like okay this is not a, a good decision that I made um, it's a sin but it doesn't change the fact that I'm justified in Christ because he paid that price and I've mm-hmm. accepted that price mm-hmm. and it's only because that justification has happened that I now look at this and go, man, I really wish that I hadn't done that. If I wasn't justified in Christ, then wouldn't I wouldn't have, have the inclination remorse. to care about that. Who would care? And so mm-hmm. then it's then it's realizing that like he who begun a good work in you is faithful and just and will complete it. Like, you know, those those two pieces get so blended together mm-hmm. that we lose sight of it. It's out of the context of a heart melting awareness of the generosity of God toward us mm-hmm. that we can even care if we sin or not. Why would we mm-hmm. care if we sinned if right. God is a jerk, you know? And so it's justification that delivers that message mm-hmm. and says, God did something for you when you had done nothing for him. In fact, you had violated him, but in, he went to the cross for you mm-hmm. so that you could stand in the sight of God, just as if you'd never sinned. He did that for you. And you see in that justification, you get, you gain a security in the character of God. And along with that security and the character and goodness of God, you gain a sensitivity to when you violate God. You care when people love you and have poured into your life, you care if you hurt them. Mm -hmm. If they don't, you don't care as much. That's just a basic fact of human psychology. Yeah. Yeah. The other side of that coin is, too, that if if you think that the work of Jesus in your life is to is to flip the switch so that you are now uh, some higher spiritual plane and achieve sinless perfection, and that is the ultimate realization of the gospel. And if you don't have that, then you are somehow not fully in Christ. Like you haven't fully accepted Christ. And mm-hmm. and I think that a lot of people would have trouble with that. But but that was definitely what I was taught at a certain point in my experience, and definitely what I believe that that I was not really my confession was not true because I'm still sinning. Yeah. As soon as you sin, you're unjustified. Mm -hmm. Like you're justified until you sin, then all of a sudden you're Mm -hmm. unjustified. And then you're constantly in a state of of, of pursuing your own security. Mm -hmm. Like you're so worried about your own lost, the potential of being lost, that it creates this fear-based religion, basically, where you're Mm -hmm. constant. And then you start wondering, am I sinning and not even knowing that I'm sinning? You Mm -hmm. know, it's not just the stuff I do that I know is wrong. It's the unconscious sins. Do those take me out of Christ? And you just start panicking. Mm -hmm. And in that process, you become so self-centered that your very existence just violates the principles of God's kingdom. Yeah. Just on a heart level, you know. You know, I'm just wondering if like part of the part of the resistance in in Adventism in particular to the idea of counseling is that because this is so ingrained in us, because I can talk to people now and talk to them about the gospel and and Mm -hmm. and I can tell like in in word at the surface level, like, oh, yeah, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. But then the next minute they're saying, I sure hope I make it to heaven. You know, oh, yeah. that that there's almost like if we accept the fact that that justification happens in an instant, totally on the merit of Christ, sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit in us moving and working. And we do have a part to play in that. We have to acknowledge, we have to recognize, we have to evaluate ourselves, take things to Jesus, lay things down, be willing to sacrifice. And counseling, you know, that is part of that process is having to work through. And sometimes you have to understand how is, why is this hooked into me so bad? And why is everything I'm doing failing? But if you believe that, that if I don't get it right, that I don't have salvation, then going to counseling then makes it a, 
denial of Christ to seek help outside of mm. just prayer and fasting and flage- self-flagellation mm. to overcome some challenge that we're having. I'm just wondering if maybe that's yeah. part of like the undergirding that has made it so difficult. There's a lot of that um, fear of getting human help. And I guess I feel a little differently about that than I used to. I was kind of taught same kind of school that you were involved in, I think, that we should depend solely upon God and never upon human beings. I don't see that borne out in Scripture. God said it is not good for man to be alone. Adam was not alone. He was with God. God still said he was alone because he needed, by virtue of the way he was created, a horizontal relationship, a relationship with a fellow human being. God has created us with both of those dependencies. And, and, and it's not sick codependency necessarily, but interdependency that human be- beings have on each other. And I believe that when people go, people can claim that they're really going to God and trying to get help, but not be because human nature is very defended and very capable of developing unconscious defense mechanisms. So a lot of times the first step you take in authenticating your true desire to get help from God is to sort of go through the motions of that with the human being. And I don't mean go through the motions in insincere sense, but just learn what it feels like to receive help from another human being. And that can open your, I think, change neural pathways so that you're more capable of receiving help from God. Because what can happen with a counselor is they can help you identify the defense mechanisms in their relationship with you where you're not letting them help you. And that can open your mind to what your defense mechanisms with God have been. And I don't know, you know, because we're so capable of fooling ourselves. Mm -hmm. Do you really trust yourself in a one-on-one relationship with God or do you need accountability to other human beings as to how you conduct your relationship? I kind of feel the latter. I do believe there's a bond between the soul and God that is sacred and private, but at the same time, there needs to be self-examination, and that self-examination process can often be greatly benefited by other people. Another pair of eyes on a situation. We're so prone to self-deception. We can just paint God in our own image and say, yeah, God is fine with everything I'm doing, until a human being comes along and says, I made an observation of you. And let me just share it with you. And that Mm -hmm. can at least potentially open our mind to what the Holy Spirit has been trying to tell us. Mm. There's this thing called the Johari window. He was a psychologist, Johari. And he created a matrix with two characteristics and four quadrants. So the two characteristics were known to self and known to others. So if you can imagine a box with four boxes in it with the Mm -hmm. different combinations of those two things. And so the known to others, known to self is your public self. Everybody knows that you have brown eyes and your birthday is tomorrow mm-hmm. and that you're married. Um, and you know it too. But the, the then there's known to others, no, sorry, known to self, I'm tired, and not known to others, and that's your private mm-hmm. self. That's the part of you that, you know, something that happened when you were 12 years old, you just don't want everybody to know about, or your DUI or whatever, you don't want everybody, mm-hmm. that's your private self. And that's okay, too. It's part of who we are. Um, Johari thought that it was really good for people to get stuff, get out of their private self as much as possible into public self and share as much as possible. You can go overboard on that. Mm -hmm. But he made a good point. Sometimes people are too secretive, you know, 
private to the point of being secretive. But the thing that jumped out at me when I was studying this is there's a quadrant that is known to others but not self. Mm-hmm. And that's what we call the blind spot. That is the, and David was preaching about this on Friday night mm-hmm. when he was talking about this dream that he had where he would go to preach in his underwear, basically. And I had similar dreams growing up. And he felt there was nothing he could do about it. I told him yesterday that I think that that was his own psychological signal as to the reality of this blind spot. The awareness that we have this blind spot is a very frightening thing. That there are things about me that other people see and know Mm -hmm. that I don't. You know, I have a bald spot Mm -hmm. in the back of my hair. You know, I have to be careful. Just the fact that I, you know, I go like this all... You know, it's just scary to mm-hmm. think that other people see something that you don't see. And when you get into the psychological and emotional stuff, that's really scary. It's a mm-hmm. very vulnerable feeling. But we can capitalize on that, the existence of the blind spot, by forming healthy rela- relationships with people that we trust that can tell us things about ourselves that we need to hear, that we may have defended ourselves against God telling us. And that can really be a growth experience if it's done in love. And that's what the body of Christ is for. There shouldn't be just all acceptance and you're awesome and high five. There should be some accountability and some confrontation. But it's loving confrontation where you're committed to the person as your brother or sister in Christ and you want to see him through to the end of their repentance and growth process, you know. Mm-hmm. But that kind of experience is meant to work in tandem with our own walk with God, not separate from it. So people that want a mountaintop with God experience but don't want to come down into the valley and be part of the body of Christ and experience some of those encounters are probably cheating themselves of a really vital relationship with God. Do you think that that, that a counseling relationship, do you think you can, that it can work like just reading? Because I know people are like, well, I got this book and I'll read this book, mm-hmm. and, and but won't go sit down with a counselor, but I'll read this book. Do, do you think you need to have that human contact for it to be as effective? Like, I, I, you know, if you're, if you're, I feel like if I'm doing that work, there are times where I can take stuff I read out of a book, work on that myself yeah. because, but if I, but I feel like I have to have that ability to open up and to un, unpack that hidden self, right? Like one of the things that I, have found very beneficial is being able to just be completely a hundred percent open about who I am and what I'm struggling with. And when I was in, when I was in that long six month stint, like that was one of the, one of the most important aspects of that to me was, is that I felt that I could 100%, you know, tell, tell the doctor anything that I was struggling with. It didn't matter. So like, it was like, I could go in there and I could unload whatever it was that was coming up. And then, but once it's laid out on the table, it's like when it's all packed in the suitcase, you know, it's hard to find stuff, but you take yeah. everything out of the suitcase, you lay it out on the bed. Yeah. And now you can kind of like process it and see what you're working with. And That's analysis and synthesis. And those are two very higher order brain processes, you know. So there is some value in counseling to just the process, um, the ability to process. People don't generally process as well by themselves as they would with another person. And if you can find that safe person that you can dump on like that, Mm -hmm. and you know that it's sacred, and that they'll hold it sacred and confidential, it's a tremendous opportunity to just, like you said, lay it all out there to where you can look at the components and figure out how they got tangled up and then put them back together in a cohesive manner. So that's, that's, yeah, that's a lot of what happens. Monologues are us, you Mm -hmm. know? (laughs) Where where do you find the balance in, like, 
doing just the mental work versus like uh, making practical application and like actually like laying in steps like you need to do this this and this to work through it versus because i think that that there's there tends to be some that things like it's all just like at least hearing people talk and i'm a complete layman but just that like okay we're just going to talk if you can figure out the root of the problem because that's that's where i was at a time like i was just trying to dig down to find i felt like there was this linchpin root Mm -hmm. at the base of my character that Mm -hmm. was causing a lot of the the challenges that i was trying to deal with and so it was all mental and now um i'm starting to i just discovered it's called uh, solutions based brief therapy yeah yeah and um and it's in line with um kind of the idea of like atomic habits and and tiny habit kind of i thinking Mm -hmm. where you know small you know find like the small component pieces and start Mm -hmm. changing the 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 things that you're doing that -hmm. are in line and so like thinking about okay like well if this was different if i was just if i was just to wake up tomorrow and this part of who i was was different what would be the first thing that i would notice about that being different and then get down to the the smallest common denominator of what that change would be and then change that. Okay, and that's atomic what what a, you're describing as atomic. Atomic habits kind of uh-huh. tiny. It's not exactly that, but that's I I was uh James Clear wrote the book Atomic Habits and uh-huh. then um there's an Adventist friend of mine Jonathan Wold. Um uh-huh. he wrote a book called Tiny Habits okay. and I had a, po- a podcast with him earlier in the year and it's just like the little things that you do okay. that that facilitate change. So Atomic Habits is like one of the examples he uses in the book uh, or maybe it was in the podcast that I was listening to um, was if you want to be a runner, um, the first step is not to go run. The first step is to build the habit of putting your shoes on. Mm-hmm. So you put your running shoes on. Yeah. And you just do that. You say, uh, you know, I want to start running at five o'clock. And if you, and if you've put your shoes on at five o'clock, you have succeeded at something, at something. A step and so, toward that. Yeah. And so you just get in the habit of every day at five o'clock, I'm going to put my shoes on. Uh-huh. And then, and then it's, and then the, I, the, the, re, the reasoning is, is that eventually like, well, if I'm putting my shoes on, I might as well at least go out the door. You know, if I'm going to go out the door, eventually I might as well, you know, walk, I might as well run. And, and so you just start putting the smallest, the, the, the mm-hmm. smallest next step possible mm-hmm. in there. And that's kind of what I've just started to, to learn about. I'm listening to a book called switch, um, on, uh, leading, change difficult change in organizations and they were talking about solutions based therapy and so it just kind of like laid in there together because they were saying find the find the smallest piece that you can change well and every time you take a small step like that you get a little bit of a dopamine burst like a self-reward a Mm -hmm. reward circuit reaction where you feel good about having done something you check something off your list Mm -hmm. even if it's just making a list or even if it's just putting your shoes on you still check something off your list you get a little reward for that and and that cre- there's two kinds of motivation, alpha motivation, beta motivation. Alpha is you feel like doing it. Beta is you don't feel like doing it. You do it on principle. What you're doing when you do a micro change like that is you're increasing your, your alpha motivation a little bit. You mm-hmm. feel more like doing it again, something more because you get a sense of empowerment. Like I can actually do things different than what I want. Mm-hmm. This time I put my shoes on. So it builds, you know, and you can do the next step. I think that's what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And that's the principle on which that works is like building self-confidence mm-hmm. when you make good choices, even if they're small. Yeah. Yeah. So, so <laughs> what was the question? <laughs> the, <laughs> we got lost in the sauce. Yeah. This happens all the time with, with talking about psychology. It's so, it's so non-material. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, the <laughs> so question non-concrete. Was... You can just be like, where am I? That's right. why every client, I have them create a goal statement. Mm-hmm. And when I feel like we're swimming 
in the sauce, I'll just say, let's go back to the goal statement, see what mm-hmm. we originally wanted to accomplish. Right. So is that, so you do that very, like at the, at the outset of the relationship, like, yeah. why are you here? What are we working on? Yeah. When, what how will we know for? when we've accomplished? Exactly. What, what, do, what do you, what would you like to be the outcome? Mm-hmm. What's the outcome of this? What would be your, you know, best case scenario? Mm-hmm. What would you really love to happen as a result of counseling? And so we craft, they come up with the goals and then I turn them into objectives. We identify the, some of the interventions and it becomes a document that we revisit from time to time. It's very simple. Yeah. I don't do anything complex. I try to keep the counseling process as simple as possible because you can get so caught up in documents and procedures and things that you lose the heart of it. But yeah, I do have some kind of guiding document that helps keep us from getting lost. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The original question that was like, where's the balance between, and maybe it's, maybe it's like a false dichotomy in my mind, but the different, the, the balance between like just doing that internal work to like look for the, the psychological roots of the problems versus yeah. like taking steps to, to make the changes. Yeah. Okay. Totally get what you're asking. I think depth versus functionality. Mm-hmm. And that's a paradox in counseling. I want to help that person function better as soon as possible. But you can be so focused on functionality and helping them learn how to deal with their automatic thoughts or their bad behaviors, change their behaviors, change their thoughts, that you don't process maybe a legitimate trauma that they experience in their life that they've never talked to someone about. So if I come in with the cognitive behavioral stuff and, and they've been through a violent rape when they were eight years old and I'm like, no, 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 you just have distorted thoughts. We need to work on your distort. And I never give them a chance to process that violent rape. It's abuse. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a form of abuse in the counseling office. Mm-hmm. So the depth would be getting through the processing and the, the empathy the you know, the unloading that you need to, to really get to the root of your issues functionality would be learning techniques and ways that you can make better choices, think better, function better, that will improve your life. And so you kind of have to balance those two things. And I will often check in with a client and say, you know, we're going pretty deep here. You seem to want to talk about these things, but how are you doing after the session? And because we'll take it down a notch if you're not able to even make it to work the next day or you're Mm -hmm. leaving your kids alone for hours that are, you know, let's, Let's keep that balance here and make sure that you can function. And what I find is that there are people that just want depth. You know, they just want to get into the very deep layers of all their pain in their life. Mm -hmm. And they just want to talk about that for the whole time, week after week after week sometimes. And then there's people that just want me to fix them up and send them on their way, you know, in a couple sessions. Mm -hmm. So one is kind of falling into the ditch of depth without functionality. The other is falling into functionality without depth. I think, you know, some of, some of the people that I've talked to and that I've tried to encourage to go to counseling and, and have, say they've tried it before is like, I didn't feel better after I went. Yeah. And, and you just kind of touched on that, that like when you, when you are digging, especially yeah. if you're, if, if, in some of these people, like I, I know there were things yeah. that they, they talk about, but they haven't dealt with yeah. in their past. Right. And so when you start opening that up and giving it some light, like you don't feel better no. at first because you start reliving um, you can that that pain or that hurt or whatever it was that's right and so but you have to push through that i think to some degree but and also it can feel bad but it can feel good mm-hmm. at the same time that because they know that they're finally talking about something that they've they've 
the, the suppress, suppression of negative material has been very painful to them. And so now that they're not suppressing it, there is at least relief of that distress. Mm-hmm. There may be additional distress of them actually thinking about the thing that's bothering them. But there is some relief, too. So often it's not just straightforward, like, I feel terrible because I'm in therapy. It's like, well, I feel good and I feel bad and this is complicated. And But usually if the therapist is skilled over time, that person can can improve. At least that's what should. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't improve in four years of weekly sessions, there's a... Ch- okay, this is a struggle that I particularly have because there are people with like bipolar or severe mental illness issues that just need to come to counseling regularly just to maintain. It's a Mm -hmm. self-care thing. We can think of counseling one of two ways. We can think of it as a service you provide for people when they feel they need it and want it. Or you can think of it as a discrete process that's laid out ahead of time that you know what's supposed to happen as the therapist and you work collaboratively with them toward this goal where they should be better at the end of it. I'm more the former one, mm-hmm. but I'm moving toward the latter one because I've gotten into a couple situations recently where I just feel like I earlier should have said, you know, I think I've given you all that I can give you. Mm. I think I should have said that earlier. However, I am loath to send people on if if they really do need weekly counseling and that's the, or, or regular counseling. We talk about, you know, staying off meds or at least not having the highest dose of meds or needing counseling in addition to meds to manage really difficult mental health issues so is that counseling just once and done or is it ongoing usually right. it's ongoing yeah so yeah so before housekeeping comes and runs us out of this hotel uh-huh. room i wanted to uh get get some of your thoughts on um mindfulness yeah as you know there's this is practice in, in christians and i think you know in adventism we have a lot of discussion about this concern about new age and whatever and and I have found, you know, I'm ADHD, mm-hmm. uh, have been my whole life. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was I was ADD before it was cool to be ADD. And uh-huh. I was ADHD <laughs> when no one knew that ADHD was a Existed. thing because my mom worked in mental health. And so uh-huh. um, I was ahead of the curve. Uh-huh. And um, and sometimes I have to take medicine depending on what my, you know, what my job and situation stress level is. Right. But a few years ago, I um, was listening to, um, I can't think of his name right now, but he, he's uh, created the Headspace app. Okay. And so it's a mindfulness meditation mindfulness, app. Uh-huh. And and I decided to give it a try because I was listening to him talk about the benefits of it, right? And so right. and I'm I'm the type of person that's like, well, I don't, you know, just cuz you tell me that it's evil and bad, like I don't believe you. I'm going to go check it right. out. So I started using the app and what I found was that this is a this is giving me a tool set to be able to like, if I'm not on my medication, if I forgot my medication or if I'm just you know, even with medication sometimes it just gets to be too much a way to stop and take a breath back away from the situation and, and try to sort out what's driving the emotions or the anxiety or the stress in a situation and make better decisions. But I think that there's still a lot of people that even with this mindfulness idea, which is very different from what you traditionally hear of like transcendental meditation, this opening emptying process, they still say, Oh, that's bad. Mm -hmm. Um, You shouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts on that? I certainly do. I believe that the mindfulness thing has become, you know, it's, there's some hype attached to it, you know. It's the, it's the cool, you know, hot therapy modality now as mm-hmm. of the last, you know, eight or ten years. 
cognitive behavioral was all the rage before that. Now mindfulness, but the cognitive behavioral is still being used a lot. But mindfulness is kind of the cutting edge, you know. And now we're getting into technology where people measure their brain waves and try to do kind of a sort of biofeedback with brain measuring devices. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a new thing. But mindfulness is all the rage. And there's quite a bit of hype attached to it. So that's really stupid. But there are things about mindfulness meditation that are beneficial. And I did a little bit of work to try to identify what they were. And so let me give you some of the things about mindfulness meditation that I think are really beneficial and and could be universally used even outside of an Eastern religion context or can be used in a Christian context by Mm -hmm. any Bible-believing conscientious Christian. Number one, deep breathing. Typically, mindfulness meditation involves deep breathing. Someone who the Seventh-day Adventist Church tends to believe had the gift of prophecy, her name was Ellen White, taught that students need to be taught how to breathe. She said that. they need, And so when someone needs to be taught something, it implies that they what? They don't know how to do it. <laughs> so we need to learn how to breathe. Number one, we breathe deep, and number two, we breathe slow. And that oxygenates the brain. It's called conscious breathing. It engages the cerebral cortex. It's very calming. I use it with everyone. Number two, recapturing the imagination. You know, we should focus on biblical themes or nature themes and direct our imagination in that direction and recap. And that's part of what meditation does is it focuses a person in on something. And that's the third thing is actually focusing. We're constantly scattered in our focus, actually focusing on one thing, whether it's your breathing or your toes or a frog over there or a Bible verse is going to be beneficial if you have kind of situationally acquired ADD. So those are some of the things that are working. I believe in extracting the things that are working and using them in whatever context you feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. That's just to me, mature adult thinking. Yeah, it's not mature adult thinking to think that's from the devil, mm-hmm. you know, so I'm going to just avoid every aspect of it. Mm-hmm. That's letting the mindfulness people tell me what to do. I just do the reverse. Right. And that's silly. I'm a rational being. I'm going to think of what's benefiting people. Maybe it's helping. If so, can I embrace a form of it that is in line with the way I function and the way I believe? Yeah. Perfect. Well, I'd love to keep going, um, but uh, they probably are going to come wanting to run us out of this hotel room. So thanks, Jennifer, for, <laughs> no problem. for sitting fun. down and, and running through this with me. I really appreciate it. And anyone that's interested in Abide Counseling, go to the website and fill out the intake form. Okay. What's the website? www.abidecounseling.com. Okay. Perfect. Thanks, Jennifer. That's it for this week's conversation. Thank you, Jennifer, for spending the time with me and and opening up and and sharing with me. I wish we could have gotten into the idea of mindfulness that we started to kind of touch on at the end, but we were sitting in uh, my hotel room and we both had to be checked out of our rooms uh, by one o'clock and and we went over by like 20 minutes and the hotel really wanted us out. So we we had to wrap it up short. Um, Hopefully I'll have the opportunity to, uh, to have her back on the show in the future and we can dig into this idea of mindfulness and the benefits that it can offer to us as Christians. If you want to connect with Jennifer, you can find her online, uh, Twitter, Facebook. Um, Just search for Jennifer Jill Swerzer. And then also, um, if you want to take a look at her counseling network, it's abidecounseling.com. There'll be a link in the show notes for all of that. And you can connect with her there. If maybe you're thinking now, hey, 
I would, I could probably benefit from talking to someone. Um, go on there, fill out an intake form, and uh, and they'll get you set up with someone that can can work with you. Just want to say thank you to Andrew over at 42design.co. Appreciated his support of this podcast from the very beginning. Um, if you have any graphic design needs, you want to talk to Andrew. He'll do you a great job at a great price, and you will not be disappointed with the product that you get from him. Next week, my guest is uh, Pastor Ron Hessel from Summit Northwest Ministries in Post Falls, Idaho. You will not want to miss this conversation coming up. We'll see you next time on the West Five Podcast. <laughs>